Amy and I do a lot of gardening, and I'm always looking for new ways to save a little bit of money. Years ago, I came up with this idea. Whenever I walk past a flower bed, I'll reach down and grab a handful of mulch and put it in my pocket. Then when I get home, I'll take out that handful of mulch and I put it in our beds. It doesn't seem like much, but it really adds up over time and it saves a lot of money. I call it Shawshank mulching. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Big Sandy. Big Sandy is a singer and a songwriter, and you might know him from his band Big Sandy and his Flyright Boys. You can find out everything you need to know about Big Sandy at BigSandy.net. Big Sandy stopped by my house here in East Nashville when they were on tour. They woke up in North Carolina and then drove six hours here to Nashville did a sound check, and then uh, he came over here to my house, and we recorded this, and then went back to the family wash where they had a gig that night, and then after that gig, they drove 30 hours straight back to Los Angeles. Think about that. Woke up in North Carolina, drove all that way, didn't sleep at all, and went right on home. That's pretty hardcore, and I, I admire that. But we had a really nice conversation, and I enjoyed chatting with him. Here's Big Sandy. Right. I was born in Norwalk, California, um, in Los Angeles. Lived there for a little while as a kid, but my first memories are um, living in Orange County, um, first in Fullerton and Anaheim, where I still live now. Were your parents into music? Or? But both of my parents were very into music. Ne- neither one of them were musicians, um, but they had a lot of records. I grew up with a lot of records in the house. Um, my mother's records were doo-wop, rhythm and blues, general oldies, that sort of thing. My father was into country, rockabilly, early rock and roll. To me, that that was the other side of things for me. So I kind of absorbed both of those things and I think that kind of ended up making a pretty big impact on the music I ended up making myself. And, and a lot of the older music from the 50s was still in the air, uh, especially like in, in, in parts of Los Angeles, East LA. There's a whole culture built around that that still ex- still exists um the the whole lowrider scene and just walk i really just remember walking to, to school as a kid that the older guys would some, be out there working on their cars and be playing some of the local oldies radio shows playing some great doo-wop music so the music really literally was in in the air so just kind of just absorbed that along the way well um i was pretty lucky growing up because my my parents, as I said, were, were really into music. Through the 70s, there was, there were still a lot of the old 
you know, the older, the fifties artists from the fifties that were still working in clubs around town and clubs and bars. And it was easier for, for kids to get into to bars back then. So I would go see guys like big J McNeely, Richard Berry, who's always been one of my idols. My mother was friends with, uh, Don Julian, uh, who had a group, Don Julian and the metal metal larks, little Caesar from little Caesar and the Romans. So we used to have some of these people over our house, over the, to the house, and my mother would take some of their kids to, to Sunday school. And so my parents would, would like would mix with with other musicians. They weren't musicians themselves, but it, you know they loved that whole world and just you know the, they loved being around it. So uh, I was lucky to be along for the ride when they would go do that. Were any of these musicians encouraging you to? To one day pursue no, this? No, no, not 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 until later. Um, when I used to go see these uh, these other artists, like like the first live shows, I, I saw Ray Charles perform, and uh, you know, it's just mind blowing. But I never thought it would that would be something that I could do myself, you know. Um, and obviously, I couldn't do what he was doing, but but uh, I hadn't put all these pieces together in my mind. I used to daydream when I would listen to records. I would always imagine myself. As, as being the one up on stage singing whenever I was listening to older records. But I never really thought it would be anything that I could do myself. When I got a little bit older and became uh, friends with, with some of the original artists, some of the original rockabilly guys, that, that's when I started to get a little bit of musical advice. And, and that was just because I would ask questions. Um, but when I was really young, I, did, I just was in awe of, of you know, watching them perform. Some of my friends, my high school friends, after we graduated, we started driving up to L.A. and sometimes we'd have to sneak into some of the clubs. But it was a pretty vibrant music scene going on at the time with um, guys like the Blasters playing along with bands like X and um, the Plim Souls. There's there a lot of interesting music going on. And I became friends with, with James Invelt, who uh, the first uh, contemporary artist that I saw that made me think like, wow, maybe you can do this older music now in a way that's like authentic but not dated um and i saw the way people especially the women were reacting to him and that's that's when my thoughts started to change and i thought man that's that's what i want to do so i started rehearsing a little bit more with my guitar and trying to write songs then i I met some guys at a house party who had a band um they were called the moon dogs by this point this was uh 84 1984 I had already been going to shows for for a few years by this point. In in '84, I met some guys at a house party who um, were looking for a new singer. And at the party, they were passing the guitar around, and it came to me. And I played, I think, it was you know, "That's All Right, Mama" or something something like that. And uh, the drummer said, "Wow, you have a really nice voice. You should come to our next rehearsal." So I, I did, and ended up becoming friends with the guys first. But after a few just hanging out with them at a few of their rehearsals, I, I became their their new singer and started, uh, yeah, we started doing club dates around Orange County and then Los Angeles. And then I met other musicians. And there was a, there was a lot going on at that time with in the rockabilly thing. Um, there were quite a few bands around town, but they all seemed to have like a, a more of a new wave kind of approach to it. Just like, you know, it, it, to me, it was a lot different than the music I had grown up listening to. It was not like the records. I was. It wasn't like more like, influenced by guys like the Stray Cats, you know, Brian Setzer, his approach to playing. 
uh, more than Cliff Gallup. You know, it's, it's so, and I wasn't really happy with with my band, or, and I wasn't that too thrilled with with a lot of the other bands I was seeing. And I started to think like it'd be really nice to get to put a band together that was a little bit closer to these older records. And I happened to meet some other guys and other bands who felt the same way, and that's what ended up becoming the band that I'm in now. And it's about 1988 by the time we when we first got got together in my garage and started rehearsing. Earlier in the 80s, there were quite a few clubs that were, were putting on their own rockabilly night. Some of the places we did have to, like, like we used to go to the, the Palomino Club in North Hollywood, which, which is, it's felt like a big drive for us. It's like a big trip. We're going to go up to North Hollywood, which was a, it was a big deal from, so, you know, from, to kids from from Orange County, and we would climb over the back fence, and you know we get to see guys like Jerry Lee Lewis. Or seeing Jerry Lee Lewis for the first time was, was like a revelation. I mean, it's you can listen to the records, and it's and it's one thing, and, it, and it's a it's a big thing, but to see to feel the the power and this, this uh, the energy that he puts out, and to me it felt like something like a like a some like an evil force or something but but and it's that sort of thing that you know reading later you know when i got a little bit older reading about him this kind of he always had that battle going on you know with the, with the religion and music um but there was something dangerous about it i guess that's what that kind of cuts to the point a little bit more that that was very attractive to me and especially coming from a middle class suburban neighborhood to go see something that dangerous was like wow it was it wasn't the sort of thing i i encountered every day growing up so i think that that was the appeal in that for me once once we got things together we started to play a few clubs in orange county and then we graduated up to some of the los angeles clubs and eventually we ended up playing the, the palomino club ourselves and th that was a really cool thing felt real you know to us out there it would be like you know getting to to play at the Grand Ole Opry or something, um, just because I, you know, you could see, see all the pictures on the wall of all the the country greats and rock and roll greats that had played there through the years. So to be on that stage was meant, meant a lot to me and to us. And the, it's a sad thing the the building is still still there, but it's not the Palomino anymore. It's just like a uh, like a banquet hall that's rented out for you know quinceañeras and you know private events. Well, there was there was two things going on. There, there it was still operating as a like a, a country nightclub. So there'd be a lot of the touring acts that would come and to play there. But the the rockabilly thing was also happening. And uh, later into the eighties, Ronnie Max started to do his his a weekly show there, Ronnie Max Barn Dance, and he would have guys like Dale Watson and uh, James Infelt and um, some some other artists that went on to do Rosie Flores. Um, they were all part of the house band, and you could see artists like that every week. And every once in a while, they would have a, you know a rockabilly night where all the kids would come out, come out for, and that's when we would get a chance to play there. Well, I, I remember um, being on, on Porter Wagner's show, uh, Jim Ed Brown's show. Um, Did you get to meet Porter? I, I, I you know, I, I got to meet Porter Wagner. Um, it was a funny thing. I was a uh, this, this this was at the Opryland, not 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 the Ryman. Um, but uh, we had we had gotten down there to to check out the lay of the land and to get bring our gear in. And I was outside just take, taking a break, to get, getting some air. And, and and I saw a guy kind of hunched over, get out of his car, walking through the parking lot. 
just just looked like some old guy. And then I saw that guy go go in the building, go in his dressing room, and then come out like forty minutes later, like looking two feet taller and and just like just <laughs> I mean like he, he was suddenly Porter Wagner. It was like Superman <laughs> slipping into that that outfit and um just just that walk, you know, and you and then you just seeing him well there's those boots walking down the hallway and you know uh, um it was a pretty heavy thing um and got to talk to him for a little bit and you know something that you, you could tell it's just it was it's just a routine for him but meant the world to me was um was little jimmy dickens there yeah, yeah we got to play with yeah on the yeah on a little little jimmy dickens night as well yeah and then i got to meet him again later on in los angeles just just to meet him or guy uh, and artists like that there at the at the opera it's it pretty cool man you know and uh it was it was special for me uh I, I flew my dad out we had already been out on tour and i flew my dad out to come join us to meet us uh here in nashville and uh i knew that would mean the world to him um so he got to hang out with us backstage and meet some of the artists that that he grew up loving pretty special One guy that's always been a hero to me is Sleepy Labeef, not only for his music or or the the records he he cut back in the fifties and and sixties, but because of the the power that he puts into his performances. I had a chance to see him at, at a pretty young age, as a in my mid teens, and I was really just blown away how like he just will plow through the entire set. I mean, one song will go into to the next, which will go into the next without any breaks and sometimes you know it'll he'll stop mid-song and, and shift directions and it uh i found out later how interested it, it, it interesting it can be backing him up you know but me and my he, he was playing in, in a in a city called hemet which is about a about an hour drive from where i live and it's like out in the sticks to us there um we drove out to a bar that that somebody had told us that sleep okay sleeping the beef is going to play there. Go no, why would he be here? You know, but we said no. Really, we called him up. We called up the bar. Like, well, yeah. Well, hold on, let me check. Yeah, you know, but the, it's not like this. And it was like they didn't even know who he was. So we still weren't sure. Is this the same sleeping the beef? So we drove down there, and sure enough, it was him. And, and um, we we watched the show, and uh, we were calling out requests, and he ended up calling me up on stage. You know, he kind of I could kind of sense that he was thinking how do you know that song you know uh he goes well i don't remember that song but if you know what you get out and come on up here and sing it you know uh and i did did. (laughs) Uh, and then afterwards um we were parked next to him in the parking lot behind the bar and uh he saw an upright bass in my friend's car he goes what do you got there you know let me see that thing you know so we hauled the hauled the bass out of my friend's station wagon and uh, he he said, let me let me give that thing a try, and and he slapped he slapped the hell out of it. And he I just rem- what I just remembered like you know he's like a mountain of a man, just like this huge tall guy, and his his hands were gigantic. It, it just the the way his hands were moving uh, on the uh, on that upright bass, working the strings and pounding it, it's like oh my goodness, that's <laughs> yeah. But, but he had a, he had this real cool pattern, this this slapping technique that he was doing. That my friend who was who was a bass player was like. His eyes were just popping out, like, "Oh, that's how they did it." You, you know? Were you scared to death when you're on stage with him? So- oh yeah, oh yeah, I was, I was scared out of my mind. Yeah, to be, a, I hadn't uh, performed that much at that point, but and certainly not with with one of my legends like that. 
I, I think for me, outside outside of playing the Grand Ole Opry, the the next biggest thing would uh, be the times that we've uh, been on the Conan O'Brien, Conan O'Brien show. The, the very first time we got the call to be on it, we were out on the road with Dave Alvin, uh, Dale Watson, uh, Buddy Miller, Reverend Billy C. Wirtz. It was like a package show. We were on the High Tone label at the time. It was uh, a, a show called the High Tone Roadhouse Review. It was, it was all of us. There was like way too many of us in, in a big tour bus uh, traveling across the country. And it was the first experience like that that we had been involved involved with. And we we went on early in the night and, you know, followed by the other bigger artists uh, uh, on the, the, the package. Um, but while we, were, while we were on the road, we got a call from our manager saying, hey, I just got a call for you guys. They want you guys on Conan. And it was like a cool thing because we were, you know, just like the the low man on the totem pole with, with uh, in that tour. But we were out of that. We were going to be the ones out of they picked to promote that tour on on, on TV. So that that was it's the sort of thing you, you just don't you can't even imagine when you're when you're younger and first getting into music. It was a pretty heavy experience. Experience. The staff there is very just like at the at the at the Opry. They're very warm and friendly. Found out later that it's like a family. It's like a family team that they have there. Um, we're working for Conan behind the scenes, and they they made us feel very well, very welcome and comfortable. We did our sound check there, and then they let you hang out in the in the green room for a little bit, and then then Conan came backstage. He couldn't wait to sh- to show us some of his guitars, and and he was a real uh, a big fan, and he's a fan of the music in general of rockabilly and, and other related styles of music. So that made it even more relaxing and made us feel even more comfortable that, you know, he kind of put us at ease until we were on stage and you get that countdown, you know, you, you know, you know that after this commercial break, you, you, boom, it's, he's going to say a couple words and you're going to be on. And I totally, this, the stage fright kicked in, in a, in a big way. And, and I suddenly forgot all the lyrics to the song and I said, Oh my, what am I going to do? I, I was, I was just sweating bullets and, uh, the guys kick in the opening riff to to the song. It was, it was a song called "My Sinful Days Are Over," and yeah, I can still I can still feel that moment. Um, the a guitar and steel guitar come to start start the song off with a little riff, and then I said, "Oh, I don't know what are the words? What are the words?" And the, but just a split second before my you know it was my turn to come in, as you know, it suddenly popped back into my head. You know, and <sighs> I would just relieve. I said, "I don't I don't care if I sound like crap." You know, just. <laughs> but I, I re, I'm remembering the words here. I'm not gonna. For, I'm not forgetting my own song. You know. <laughs> is there an after party when you do something like that? There is. Uh, when you when you do a show like that, um, there's that long stretch of time after the taping that where you're waiting for it to air on, on, on TV, and you're you know this was when he was still in New York, so you're so you're waiting where it's he had to make a careful choice where are we going to watch this what which bar are we going to go into in, in the city and, and experience this and you know you want other people to be around and be able to point at the at the screen hey that's me you know, you know like but we ended up going to uh the rodeo rodeo bar uh the first time we played it but we've been back on a, a few other times it was also on a, a few times with low straight jackets as a guest vocalist um, yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a cool thing to be part of. We we played a prison in in, in the state of Oregon, um, a high security prison. Since that, you know, it's always 
instantly like, what? Do they have bands going there? Do that? Is that safe? You know, that sort of thing. And then they say, yeah, there are a lot of bands do it all the time. You know, it's, it's just, it was like a regular gig up there. But but the first time I got this, a sense of the seriousness of it all, of how heavy it all, it all was, it's like, you know, they're you had to have, you know, your full ID and everything, you know, uh, but our steel player, for whatever reason, he didn't have his his license, didn't have a passport with him, so so he couldn't get in. So, okay, so we're guys, we're going to do this gig without our steel player. So then we go through the next, you know, you go through the gate, you go through this, you know, different levels of security, and they give you the orange vest to put on, and then... You know, you're thinking like, oh, why do we have to put these on? You know, well, in case a, if a riot should break out, we know who not to shoot at. You know, so <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow, what are we doing? What are we getting ourselves into? And then uh, the, the coolest thing I remember about doing that gig, though, was uh, one of the inmates who came up and asked, can you sign something for me? And I go, yeah, sure. And, and it was a, like a, a porno mag that he wanted me to sign. And I, I, I there was a... Uh, an article that in, in one uh, in this particular issue about about rockabilly music, and it had my picture in there. <laughs> uh, so he wanted me to sign that, uh, and that's uh, I thought that was pretty cool. I said, oh, yeah, I didn't know they let them have those in there. But. <laughs> so where did you wake up this morning? Well, this morning I woke up in Greer, South Carolina, in a. <laughs> moonshine induced haze uh <laughs> last night we played a, a festival called the albino skunk music festival um and w- when i saw that that name pop up on our itinerary uh a few months ago i thought what is this i called called uh brad our, our, our booking agent said what is this about albino skunk and he didn't he didn't know the origin of of the name um we didn't find out until we were there we started asking around yeah we thought it was some sort of drug reference or <laughs> you know the guys were like oh girls you know skunk buds or something, you know but i i guess this particular festival uh started as just like a backyard party there's a there's a couple living there in south carolina that have a good sized property and they uh would invite their neighbors over and, and hire a couple bands or, or actually other musician friends to come over and jam in their backyard. And they have they were having one particularly swinging party, and one of them claims to have spotted an albino skunk running out of the woods and right past the, the, the little campsite where they were at. And I guess the festival grew out of that. You know, but it has a cool name. It's, it gets your it, it grabs your attention anyway. Is that like a snipe? <laughs> or a spam, no. spam animal as i think what we used to call oh, it no, the, i actually i looked it up and there you know i saw I actually saw pictures of of uh albino snipes no albino skunks <laughs> well how far is the drive to nashville well today we drove uh it was about five and a half hour drive to get here uh, and I, not too bad you know and you play tonight it's a family wash the family wash tonight yeah first time there where do you go tomorrow tomorrow um well, actually, tonight after our show, we're going to drive straight back to California, um, and only because Ashley, my guitar player, and myself have to get home and uh, kind of regroup for a day before turning around and heading out to Las Vegas. Uh, there's a festival um, at the Orleans Hotel that happens every Easter weekend. It's actually like a week long event, but it's whatever uh, weekend that centered around whatever weekend uh, Easter falls on that particular year. Um, it's a rockabilly festival called Viva Las Vegas, and I am 
the host. I'm I'm one of the MCs, and uh, Ashley's Ashley leads the house band, backing up uh, some of the original '50s artists. Like this year, he's uh, I think he's backing up Lloyd Price, and uh, let's see, there's a a, a couple of uh, Sun uh, Sun artists and guys from the Sun record label that he's backing up as well. But that, it's, that's a, something we do every year. So our tour tour always has to be cut short for us to get back to that. And that's that's the case this time again. How far of a drive is that back to? Woo. Uh, I think it's um, one day and six hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, what it, you know, 30 hours, I guess. I'm curious to see who's going to drive the first shift, you know, the overnight. But, yeah, we're going to do a straight shot back. I, I didn't like that before, but now, nowadays, it seems like every, we all feel the same way. But the, at the end point of a tour, everybody just can't wait to just get back home, even if, if, if it is for a day or two. Um, I appreciate you coming over and uh, chatting with me here in my living room. Oh, sure. Thank you very much. I hope you could whittle something out of, whittle that down to something <laughs> interesting. Uh-huh. It's going to be beautiful, man. I'm looking forward to coming to the show tonight. Too. All right. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you'll be there. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Big Sandy for coming over and chatting with me in my living room. You can find out everything you need to know about Big Sandy at BigSandy.net. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.